Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Ladies Shiny Podcast. This is your co-host, Stephen Spector. And with me, as usual, is Rob Hirschfeld. Good morning, Rob. Stephen, good morning. I am I'm, back I'm, from... I'm, I'm, you're back? I'm back from a short little mini vacation to Salt Lake City, which was quite interesting. And um, I'm motivated today to get some podcasts done. And uh, <laughs> I know I know you're going to yell at me. And, and our quick little banter here this, this morning is theme song. That's right. That's well. I, you know, it's it's interesting because I listen to to uh, you know some podcasts and they they have they have their theme. They got their their little music, their ditty going. Sometimes it's long and they drag it out. Uh, we've 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 really stayed sort of true to our roots. It's you know jump in and get it done. But I I'm gonna go look. I, I it is on my list. I'm going to give you, Rob, three choices, and if you hate them all, then you'll give me three choices. <laughs> and and so for our listeners and a few podcasts from now, may, probably not this one, but maybe one or two podcasts after this one, we I, may have know, a theme song. I, I would love to hear from, from listeners on this one. Yes. I, I'm, I love the Cinderblock desk and, and plyboard uh, feel, so I am, I am okay with, with the hello and welcome to the latest shiny as, but, as our intro. I still think we should do something. We should be more professional. You know, we've only done it for two and a half years. It's time to step up. <laughs> 100 and some, 148 or podcasts. Well, anyway, we have another new guest. And, you know, uh, as I've said this year, uh, we're a little scattered, but we are bringing on new companies, uh, new people. So it's taking a little longer, but I'm excited about it. And so with us today is the CTO and co-founder of LogDNA, uh, Lee Lu. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Lee, if you can just give us a little, quick little background about yourself, and then maybe a little bit about Log DNA for our listeners, and then from there we can jump into. Uh, I expect a lot of Kubernetes discussions today, Rob. So this should be exciting. I'm ready. Yeah. Um. So yeah, my name is Lee Lu. I am the co-founder of Log DNA. This is uh, my third startup with my co-founder. So we've been we've been doing startups for a while. Um. Personally, I've always loved tech, love technology, gadgets, things like that. Um, LogDNA is a cloud log management software. So you now you send us your logs, we'll help index it and you know, let you search it and uh, give you metrics and logs and dashboards. Um, we have both a cloud version of our software as well as a, a private cloud um, version where you can deploy to uh, any of the major clouds, AWS, uh, Google, Azure, IBM Cloud. From that perspective, right, that's all logs. How does logs tie into Kubernetes for you? Yeah, so for us, uh, our Kubernetes journey was uh, one actually of something that I picked about two years ago. <laughs> At the time, there was there was Docker Swarm, there was Kubernetes, and there was Mesosphere. And okay. I we literally had enough resources and people to be sort of go all in with one tech. And for a while, I was like, oh, maybe Docker Swarm was going to be the one. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad that I put all my eggs literally in the Kubernetes basket. Um, it looked like great technology. I previously was a contractor for Google like a long time ago. And so it was one of the things I'm like, you know what? Kubernetes looks like it's got the legs. And uh, it was really exciting technology at the time. And I love the orchestration and some of the parts that uh, we use very um, a lot today. And so... Yeah, with LogDNA, we migrated our whole setup to, to, log, uh, to Kubernetes. Um, and it was, it was one of those things where I was like, 
to grab logs from Kubernetes so that I don't lose them when the container dies, that was a big deal. And so there wasn't any real easy solutions back then. And so we sort of took that and made it really, really easy to ingest. So when you say grab logs from, from a container, is this for your application on Kubernetes or, you know, is, is most of your market selling to people who are using Kubernetes and need that are logging out of Kubernetes? Yeah, no, both, uh, for sure. Yeah, so definitely we use it ourselves to grab our own logs, but uh, of course, more importantly, that so that our customers, our customers don't lose uh, logs from their Kubernetes clusters, which was a, you know, three years ago, two years ago, this was a, this was a problem. There wasn't, there weren't a whole bunch of solutions. And so we decided to go ahead and, uh, and do that. So I, I guess, I guess I got to ask, right. There's this whole trend of, uh, observability, which is sort of powered by this idea that we don't, we have very, uh, temporal instances of things running versus logging. Do you have a, a weigh in on that or do you sort of throw your hands up and say, we're just trying to collect data? Um, yeah, I, I would say the logging is, is such that it is definitely temporal, um, but it's temporal to a point where you need to have at least, I would say, you know, maybe a week or two weeks or, you know, four weeks of data because when, you know, for most of our customers who are diagnosing like sub one incidents, you know, mm -hmm. yes, the incident was yesterday, but the analysis goes for weeks and you want to try to have as much data as you can to improve your software, improve your resi resiliency, improve reliability and things like that. Logs are, are fundamentally important to that equation. It really helps let people debug a lot of really, really deep things that they can't see from, you know, just having recorded metrics, which we also have, but, you know, it doesn't paint the entire story. And sometimes you need to dig down into the logs to be like, oh, this is the cause of that problem or this is the cause. Yeah. So I would say while it's temporal, it's one of those things that is very instrumental to, to solving problems. Yeah. And I mean, that generates into a lot of data. Have you, have you seen from a container perspective that it changes the way people log or think about logging? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So log data is one of those, you know, one of the things that we have in our engineering team is that, you know, like we thought big data was a cool thing, but, you know, with big data comes big problems, right? So, yeah. So storing it, managing it, indexing it are all, all challenges for sure. Um, but, okay. you know, but as a result, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, I'm glad that we're in logging. It's one of the, it's one of those things that, you know, for a lot of people, I think it looks easy from the outside until they start scaling. And then they realize that, ooh, this is not actually as easy as, as it looks. Um, but yeah, the, the big data challenges are, are both for me, you know, because I love technology, it's very techni technology challenging for me. And it's really, it's really fascinating to work with. Um, but, you know, yeah, there's challenges for sure. Do you, when, when you look at a, you know, a distributed because, I mean, the thing that to me that really pops out with like Kubernetes specifically is you might be generating log information from an application that is, you know, sort of moving around. So it could be on one server, it could be on a new server, it could be, you know, you might have three instances of, of containers that are have very similar results. I mean, how do you make sense of all that noise? Right. So luckily, uh, Kubernetes like from the onset, they had like centralized logging built in. So all the logs sort of collect onto the node itself. And we basically just read it from the node. Um, and it, it it's really mm. simple to collect sort of like 
very holistic picture of all apps running on the entire Kubernetes cluster. And that was something that I was really adamant about is, you know, if you don't have a complete picture, it's hard to diagnose things when, you know, a lot of microservices, different components fail, right? And so it's really hard to figure out, you know, was it this component that that was the cause or this one? And if you don't have logs from both, it's hard to see which one, which one was the sort of the root cause. And so very, um, I always encourage everyone to log everything. And then after you start, then you can, you know, whatever tool you use, you know, you can use hopefully filter it down from that point on. But it's important to start at least capturing it first and then determining that. Well, it makes a ton of sense. It's it's interesting because I had made the assumption that when you were describing this, it was on a per container basis. Logging from the host makes a ton of sense because every container is gonna, you know, has has a huge logs log. Um, I think of it as a waste stream, but it's not. It's you know a whole bunch of outputs that are coming into the system. And you're right; they're not isolated isolated capabilities. They're not isolated things, even if you know the containers don't know about each other. Huh. Yeah, for sure. And so that yeah, and, I mean, okay, go ahead. No, no, no. I was I was just gonna say yeah, absolutely. Like logging from the node is the most efficient way to do it. Um, you save a bunch of you know memory and CPUs because you're not you know doing it like a sidecar or something like that. You know, you're not doing it per container. It's just easier to set up. You know, for us, we have a two cube CTL kind of command line deploy. You run the two commands, and all the logs flow from the entire system. And it, it so, just so you know. <laughs> If you're using kubectl, that means that you're you're still running a container on on each host. So you're running what admin mode daemon daemon set and that and that, a daemon set exactly. Okay, and so from that, that's oh, so that's why you are in Kubernetes. You're not running externally to the infrastructure. You're still running inside of the Kubernetes frameworks. And then, do you have a, a separate application that then all that all that the daemon set data flows into for analysis? Yeah, absolutely. So depending on if you're using us on the cloud or if you're doing a private deployment on AWS, for example, um, uh, depending on which method, uh, they either flow to uh, your deployment or flow to our deployment. And we, you know, the same thing happens. There's an ingestion pipeline. We do some data enrichment. Then we let you search a log really, really fast. Okay. So that's, we, you know, we deal with people on premises. That's our, our bread and butter. And so mm -hmm. what you're saying is that if you don't want your, your, your log, logs have sensitive data in them. Absolutely. Uh, streaming, streaming into a, a service somewhere, um, no matter how much you trust them, you could say, all right, just keep, you can keep all that data locally. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have like ton of compliance and security, like for even for when, when we were like maybe 20 people, we had, we already had SOC 2, we had PCI, we had HIPAA, we had, you know, GDPR, of course, and, and security was always a big thing for us, mainly because me and my co-founder in our, in our previous life, we, we worked with eBay and we had to start being Soxy compliant. And that, I can tell you that that's a lot harder than all the things that we're doing today. And so the <laughs> compliance thing was something that just was built into our, our history. And so when we, when we started LogDNA, that was one of the first things we did was be compliant all these years because we knew that log data is, has tons of sensitive data in it, right? Like, yeah. I always equate it like this. For if you had like a like a Postgres database or something like that, that's a like a snapshot in time of your your data. Um, log data, if anything, is like a streaming version of that. So I can rebuild almost what you have in your database, but I I have the history too. 
So log data is definitely very, very sensitive and we want to make sure yeah. that all our customers had the security for sure. Yeah. Do you have tools as part of that that help sanitize logs or at least tell people that they're logs, hey, you shouldn't be storing, putting, this shouldn't be showing up in the log. That's, that's PII information. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We give people tools. We don't, you know, we don't tell them what to do. They, if they want to send us this data because they need to, or they don't want to hash it or whatever the case may be, um, that's why we have the compliance. Like, you know, we, we're not a, we're not a credit card processor, but we have the PCI compliance because in case you send it to us, we'll still be compliant regardless. Um, but you know, yeah, Definitely, we have tons of tools to help you. Um, like we have this thing called custom parsing that you can literally drag and drop things and filter out or include or remove anything you want. So we have a lot of a lot of great tools to help you manage the data that's coming in for sure. That's one of those things that I think people don't think about when they they are building out their application infrastructure is how easy it is for logs to leak. Uh, you know, sensitive data, and then for that just to go downstream, <laughs> you're, not, you're not even thinking through that. That even if your app is secure on the front end, that you know the the, the breadcrumbs that it leaves behind might might violate everything you've done from a front end system. So yep. that's a big that's a big deal. And so, can you help people? Because in so I'm assuming it's there's going to be two teams, right? The log team, the teams that you're working with aren't necessarily the app developer teams, they're bolt-ons. Yeah, so or, I would say- downstream oper operations uh, from that perspective. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I would say we are, most of our customers fall into two camps. So one is one would be, of course, software engineering, you know, they run their apps, they run Lightail, they run a couple of searches. Maybe they have that that one keyword that they're looking for, some exception that they're, they're monitoring. Um, so yeah, I largely, it, it, I would say most of our customers are probably software engineering, but you know, there's a growing set of infrastructure engineering, engineers, SREs and the like, um, where our tool is really good at, you know, they, they don't know the apps are that, that they're managing, but they can see the logs and they can see, um, like that thing that you mentioned earlier about like, Hey, there's tons of replicas for a particular app, maybe, um, we help really narrow that stuff down so that you can see almost like a, for this app, regardless if it has like two replicas or 200 replicas, we can show you logs like aggregated into one platform so that you can search through like, is this like a, is it only this pod having the problem? Or is like all pods are having this problem? And so being able to quickly diagnose things like that is really, 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 really useful rather than just, you know, running the CTL tail on like one pod. <laughs> um, but you know, if you, if you run it, if you run across 200 pods and you can't do that with QCTL, it's just, you know, you're really quickly inundated with data. So we let you basically cut through the, the signal to noise ratio is pretty good. basically. Right. Well, and then that's even assuming that the pod is still there when you come back to, to it, go looking for problems. So. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, that was one of the things that I, that one of our, one of our friends who, who first clued me into Kubernetes was like, I've been using this dash p fly for the previous log of the container that died, and most of the time oh, the dash p doesn't work. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, yes, I see. Okay, let me let me see what I can do, and that's how our Kubernetes solution was born. Yeah, that 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 to me, you know, it's it's great that you have the transparency of what's you know you can sort of find a find a container, but I, I literally was just doing some diagnostics in a in a Kubernetes cluster, and it's like, all right, find me the namespace, find me the pod, find me the container, then yeah. look at the, the the tail, and by by that time I was already exhausted and looking for a drink. Um, 
So, so having a way to be able to say, you know, all right, I, I have that. Um, that's a big deal, especially if you're doing it two or three times and you're looking for different, different clusters. So I think people underestimate, um, maybe let's, you know, turn the conversation towards Kubernetes mm -hmm. because this is where, you know, Kubernetes is very powerful, but there's a usability challenge with this type of distributed control plane where, mm -hmm. you know, it does a lot of things automatically. And that means that you, you don't have, you know, it's you know, sort of whack-a-mole, I guess, when you're looking for a problem. How, how do you how do you help with that or how do you how do you approach a situation like that um i would say the uh, yeah definitely logging everything helps with that um because mm -hmm. then you can sort of see the inception of what a an error or an exception or a a a, a problem starting to surface and you can see how that ripple, ripple effects through the system um the control plane issues are are interesting so one of the things that we've done recently um the and and we haven't quite released this yet but kubernetes generates a lot of events um if you do qptl yeah. get events you can see literally the you know like if for for the to be honest i recently learned this for um for a lot of our customers they you know they do a describe pod and they can see like oh this this is the pod starting this is the container getting created this is it pulling pulling the image what what, what have you but you know you can collect all that through get events and that's what we we're going to be start start doing is that you know it, it's cool to see like oh yeah this this app is generating a log but when did the app start and when did the app get terminated or run into an error oh, wow. right? yeah, yeah so you so can so see like, a, life, a life cycle for a pod yeah exactly and be able to see that in context with the logs you could be like oh this is the container starting okay five seconds later the logs are spinning out right these types of you know the control plane as you mentioned like having this kind of data mixed in with the logs now you can see not only the the container sort of um itself and its own logs but but you know just one level removed from that which is now like what does kubernetes see from your container and so forth like that so this kind of stuff really interests me and uh, i'm glad we're starting to move in this direction so do, do you then think that some of what you're building should be like out of the box functionality. I've, I've been watching some some Twitter streams of people who are like, you know, my minimum Kubernetes set includes, and then that have this <laughs> uh, a little overwhelming list in some ways of of projects or or components. Do you have a minimum minimum set that you think should be like the right the right you know don't 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 run Kubernetes without log DNA and Istio and 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 there's there's the lists were getting a little overwhelming to me and I, I track all the i track all the project names and at some point i was just like this sounds more like a like a anime cast list than it does a uh <laughs> than it than it does um you know a, an it project yeah no absolutely um for us we you know because we run both sort of on, like on-prem and and as well as in the cloud it def definitely limits our choices a lot we need to sort of look for you know vendors who can sort of you know be in both areas where we play um but you know you know after even saying that like we we have a list for sure we we always install our own agent uh we're really good friends with sysdig and um their tool is really awesome so we always have sysdig agent there um and then beyond that you know we we use a vendor called Portworks for uh, storage, for dynamic provision of local storage, which is really exciting. Um, but beyond that, I think uh, we don't have a whole lot of other, other things. You know, 
the, just the general stuff like, you know, Prometheus and things like that. But um, that's mainly just the field of for Kubernetes to do its own thing. We don't actually quite use it as, as much as we like. But, and, uh, and well, yeah. and that makes sense. If if you're you know sort of running an application inside of Kubernetes on Kubernetes, then the the infrastructure itself has the the pieces that you need. You're not trying to load balance an application you know onto the internet from that perspective. So. Yeah, well, we we have we have pretty vanilla Kubernetes installs for our side. It just keeps and makes managing all the dozens of environments just a little bit easier. Makes sense. And you had, you had mentioned Portworks. I'm always curious about the physical, you know, mapping for Kubernetes because one of the things that when when we look at like Kubernetes on bare metal, that Kubernetes really isn't that aware of disks, disk subsystems, networks, and network subsystems. It's it's really relying on, you know, sort of a higher level abstraction, or a, I, I would I see it as a virtualization layer. Um, how how do you deal with that or how do you you know do you have to worry about that when, when you look at kubernetes yeah so the the interesting thing that we've discovered maybe a year ago now um so we so we run kubernetes on bare metal a lot um we the thing is when 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 you have network attached storage like ebs or something there's nothing wrong with ebs it works well but in order to have the sustained write speed that that we need for for logging, um, yeah. EBS while it performs well, we just need to have more like more more CPU, more compute, more memory, just to be able to meet some sort of minimum baseline. On the other hand, with bare metal, we actually need fewer compute resources because the disk is really really fast. There's not a whole lot of waiting. The IOPS, you know, the IOPS are not at 3K anymore. They're like at 150K, right? So when you're when you're doing um, local storage, which we use like prolifically everywhere, it really shrinks the compute requirements by more than at least I, I ever thought was possible. So um, companies like Portworks, um, we, you know, we don't run it, we don't run them in their sort of like their ideal state, which is um, very similar to how even EBS works. It's, it's over the network. We run them where we try to pair it so that the pod that started is connected to the one locally on the now, this might sound like, you know, we're, we're using Kubernetes in, in an unintended form, but, you know, I, I've had this debate with a number of different people and it's, for us, this use case works well. We have, sure, the orchestration definitely is hampered a little bit, but the speed is phenomenal and we can have a lot of the, you know, the other properties of Kubernetes, like the self-healing, the all, all the sort of the, the pod management and figuring out where, where things go that are like the stateless ones. Sure, mm -hmm. the stateful ones, you know what, to be honest, we're not restarting those all the time anyway. So by having this, we were sort of mirroring, in my opinion, like, like two worlds, so like the old world with local disk, but the new world with Kubernetes, where we married it very well to a point, it's actually made a lot of like operational headaches just sort of disappear for us. So we're, we're really happy to have like dynamic disk provisioning with local disks. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it's super fast and we're really happy with the performance. Interesting. So does that end up looking like a stateful set from that perspective? Or is that like a, a local disk stateful set? Yeah, exactly. A local disk stateful set, but you don't have to worry about, you know, if there's three or four of these stateful sets running on the same uh, physical bare metal host, that's just fine. It will figure out how to divide up the disk based on the requirements that you specify in, in your pod spec. And so, um, yeah, it's super powerful. 
Um, really happy to just, you know, prior to Portworx, we actually wrote our own disk provisioner. It worked really well, but, you know, we didn't have like a whole team like Portworx to manage and support it. So we, we sort of migrated from our own, uh, our own dynamic disk provisioner for local to, to, to Portworx. And that, that's helped us a lot. That's interesting. So that's a, that sounds like, you know, in these cases where, you know, we've, we've assumed cloud, 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 and more cloud for everything. These are cases where there's optimizations where you actually can say, all right, I, if I understand the infrastructure under what's going on, I can make a difference. Would you use, would you use Portworx even in, in the cloud infrastructure or does it just not make sense? Or, I mean, Portworx probably makes sense because they're not just for this use case, but is, is this, uh, uh, on-premise bare metal case specifically or a more general general case for you for us it's we use it exclusively on bare metal uh we don't use this on like okay. our aws deployments for customers or anything like that but um it's one of the things that we're investigating because we found other interesting um things with so we use Elasticsearch as our as our data store because i was really adamant about having like an open source data store that people can feel that they're not being like locked into us or anything like that with our data. Um, with Elasticsearch, there's a there's a couple of interesting things about um, largely around replicas and, and things like that. And and you know replicas initialize at a different speed than primaries. And so if we could move the replication off of Elasticsearch and onto something like Portworx, we might be able to get um, much better performance out of it. So we're we're investigating a couple of things in that area, but generally our current cloud deployment for customers, uh, the single tenant appointment, um, they, they're not using, they only use Portwork today now. Okay, that's interesting. And do you see a lot of bare metal Kubernetes for on-premises use cases? Yeah, bare metal is, is it's hard to beat. And, you know, like, <laughs> I feel like we've come full circle, um, you know, back in the days, like 20 years ago, when I used to just rent servers and just rent things on them. Um, and they were just bare metal, right? But now it's, I feel like, you know, the clouds, then like, you know, the 2010s were very much about cloud and I feel like bare metal is making a, a small but impactful comeback. You know, people have realized that it's hard to match a performance. Mind you, hypervisors have gotten really, really, really fast over the years and they're, they've continuously been optimized that it's hard to, it's hard to compete with bare metal for sure from a, from a, just a raw speed perspective for sure. Makes sense to me. Do you see customers choosing a different footprint for bare metal infrastructure? Because one of the bigger bigger issues is a super big bare metal machine doesn't necessarily translate into a good memory footprint for Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. So are people changing what they buy from that perspective? Um, yeah, I, I would say like, at least for us, you know, like on, uh, I'll give you an example. So generally Elasticsearch, you know, likes like a 64 gigabyte kind of memory footprint and it'll use like like just under 30 gig for like its heap so it's a it's a good mix so we use a lot of like m5 4x larges on aws for example which is a 16 core 64 gig vm right mm -hmm. um, and we use that quite a bit for for our deployments there but for bare metal you know to get some of the the, the disks and the the efficiencies and stuff you know like aws large servers and they they slice mm -hmm. it up and for us when you do bare metal you have to do a lot of the same things so we you know our, our standard server is you know I, we still try to keep it small so that you know when when one server dies there's not a huge amount of impact across the, our app stack um so we you know we usually do like a 256 gig server with like 64 cores and we can slice it up into three or four slices to 
to stimulate the M5 fork larger than 16 cores. 64 right. cores. Those, so, are new, those are good NUMA boundaries. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, right. exactly. So that, you know, like, is, you know, I thought I was like, oh, what if we put in like a terabyte of RAM? Well, you know what? If that node dies and computers die all the time, you know, then it's it's a much more bigger impact when something like that dies. So we try to we try to make a good balance, I think, between um, what's 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 good for reliability and what's good for you know literally packing on the pods. So yeah, when you say that you're partitioning, does that mean you're putting a virtualization layer above it? This is like a I'm, I'm unapologetically going into full <laughs> research mode. This is right. This is super <laughs> cool practical stuff especially because yeah. you're both helping people with Kubernetes and using it. But does mm -hmm. that mean you're just partitioning, you're taking a big machine, 256 gigs of RAM, partitioning it down into NUMA boundaries um, in VMs, and then, but then basically passing through the resources? What's, what's the strategy for that? Oh, oh, no, no, we don't, we don't run a VM layer on top of that. We just run, we basically put Kubelet directly onto the, a node like that using Terraform, and then we're, we're just off to the races and we let the, the cube orchestrator sort of handle all those things. Interesting, because then, because from that perspective, you still have the two fifty six. What what is your partitioning strategy then? Right. So, like our podcast. Uh, sorry, our podcast. <laughs> our pod <laughs> specs basically um, slice it down to uh, okay. So this this is a sixty gig pod. This is a sixty gig, and so you can fit a you know oh, roughly about okay. four onto onto a node. And and yeah, and, and that and that works really well. Like it will with anti affinity rules, which are like a godsend, like with a combination of these things, you can get really, really good um utilization. And then with dynamic disk provisioning on top of that, a lot of things you don't have to worry about anymore. You don't have to it, it feels like cloud mostly, but even though it's literally just bare metal. And so this is one of the big reasons why we use Kubernetes. It's it's just it simplifies a lot of stuff for our infrastructure teams. That makes a ton of sense. And so they can feed that back in um, into the provisioning infrastructure. Do you all use Kubelet directly or and uh, or kubectl directly, or are you, you building Helm, Helm charts for this? Um, generally, we use kubectl directly. Um, there is, you know, we have a bunch of uh, our own commands that sort of help simplify, like essentially like aliases, if you will, a little bit more, mm. more involved in that. Um, just so that you know we're all sort of running the same commands and doing things the same way, um, but that just for repeatability, you can almost replicate it any of that with just running the commands themselves. Um, yeah, that's I, I've been doing some work with Helm and I, my Helm, my Helm. So we like we wrote we we have uh, in Digital Rebar we have wrappers around Helm, but mm. it's like here's the Helm chart. And then here's the three things you need to run, you know, kubectl before, and here's the three things you need to do kubectl after. And I'm like, I, right. it, I, it's not Helm isn't isn't an installer at that point. It's it's you know just give me the, the instructions I can run them. And I'm I'm <laughs> scratching my head a little bit on, you know, I I get it, but at the same time I'm I, I don't get it. So yeah, no, like this is why we're really excited about like operators um they've been out for a little while we just haven't really gotten into it very heavily but you know the, sure. the concept is really good and it basically describes you know a solution to the problem you just outlined um yeah operators are something that we're we're definitely going to be using more of uh, at least this year um okay. and we're looking forward to implementing that again. ah that makes sense so yeah operators are sort of becoming the i will watch the cluster and do the actions that you want me to do 
yeah, um, exactly. as, a, as a solution. That makes sense. And, and th these clusters you're describing, you commingle the work. So, you know, your customers are, are bringing Kubernetes applications and other, other apps. I'm assuming, are, are you commingling those clusters or do you say, I need a cluster to run LogDNA as the background? Or would you, you know, how, how many clusters would a customer have? Um, generally, like for our multi-tenant SaaS uh, version of like app.logdna.com, for example, like we have one cluster uh, for that. We, you know, I, IBM Cloud has sort of selected us as their OEM partner for logging. So cool. like, you know how like AWS has CloudWatch, we IBM, like we're their CloudWatch effectively. So we Very run nice. logs for both IBM internally, as well as for all their customers on IBM Cloud. So very blessed to have that relationship. And so for each of IBM's worldwide data centers, of which there are like I think six or seven now, we're in every single one. And so each of those is a cluster. So we run each of those very independently uh, where wherever the, the physical location is. And then for each of our customer deployments, um, those are all because it's on you know their sub account on their AWS. Uh, we we run a cluster for those as well. So yeah, so most of our stuff is fairly like you know very much to one cluster is one customer or one one uh, cluster is one sort of deployment. So for multi-tenant, one cluster for you know all the thousands of customers there, and other ones it could be just like one to one where it's just one customer. So Lee, this is Steven, as I told you before at the He's start. He's just going to reveal the secret plans. We you, we finally got to the part where you're going to tell us the strategic unknown roadmap and expose all the secrets, so I have to stop because that's what I promised the marketing executives I would do because, you know, letting letting CTOs on podcasts, you never know what they're going to say. Uh, I'm teasing. If, uh, if people are interested in learning more about your company, uh, I know it's logdna.com. Um, are you on Twitter anywhere they can reach out to you? Uh, I unfortunately am not. I, I, I'm just really busy and I haven't had, I wish I could be more and I just, I just haven't really got a whole lot of social media in, in, in these days. Been, been busy dealing with, uh, with, uh, things at the company for sure. <laughs> it's okay. a good well, time I know, to stay out of social media, frankly. It's actually, it's actually a good, it's actually become a good thing. I think it's changing, but your blog is pretty up to date. So for some yes. of the, um, listeners as you were just talking about the IBM uh, offering uh, log DNA and I see that sitting on the top of the blog so I think that's great well uh, Lee it was really great having you on the podcast uh, appreciate uh, the information uh, to our listeners hopefully you found this really useful and as Rob and I always say if you're interested in participating want to talk to us about stuff uh, reach out we're always available and Rob um, you know with all these conference cancelings are there any conferences you're still going to or are you home for a while? I am home, shut in, and get. I'm, I'm healthy, but uh, no, we're we're not we're not planning much travel. I I had SREcon on the list, and I'm I'm not sure. I think it, you know, we might only have local presence there if they if they go ahead with it. But I just don't see how they're how any of these conferences go ahead with. 30% yeah. attendance drops. And Lee, um, and Lee, I know you said you guys were looking at KubeCon in uh, Amsterdam. So probably by the time this is airing, maybe it's already been decided. But I would expect you've been part of I would expect it's going to get canceled. Do, do either of you know or have a guess? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. For for us, it's more like, you know, got definitely got to balance safety. And you know, some people are going to be concerned. And so for those, at least for our, our, our staff, if they don't cancel it, if 
if any of our staff has problems, we're of course they they can cancel their own trip. That's not a big problem. Um, it's it's tricky though. I understand the dilemma a lot of these conferences are facing. It is tricky. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know Ericsson has uh, shut all non-essential travel for all employees globally, and mm-hmm. uh, so that's quite you know. I'm sure a lot of the bigger companies. Well, anyway, so yeah. I guess Rob will be uh, home more, so we'll have more time to do more podcasts. Great. <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> And our, our mileage, our airline miles will suffer. Well, thanks to both of you again. And to our listeners, <laughs> we hope you. you enjoyed the podcast. Talk to you again soon.